Chapter Nine of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan, by Clarence E. Mulford, Chapter Nine, The Crossbar Eight Loses Sleep. Sneed was angry, which could be seen by the way he talked, ate, moved, and swore. He had many cattle to care for, and they were strewn over six hundred square miles of territory. The work was hard enough when he had his full dozen punchers, but now it forced groans from the tired bodies of his men, who fell asleep while removing their saddles at night, and who worked in a way almost mechanical. The extra work was not conducive to sweetness of temper, and he was continually quelling fights among the members of the outfit. Where only argument formerly would have arisen over differences of opinion, guns now leaped forth and the differences were multiplied greatly and getting worse every day. Things which ordinarily would have provoked no notice, or a laugh at most, now caused hot words and surliness. And the reason for the extra work was the continued absence of five cowpunchers. Sneed, tired of cursing the missing men and of offering himself explanations as to why they had not returned, fell instead to planning an appropriate reception for them on their return to the ranch. He needed no rehearsing, for while he did not know in just what manner he would reveal his ideas concerning them, he knew what his ideas were, and he had always been good at extemporizing when under pressure, and he was under pressure now if he ever had been. The extra work was hard enough in itself to cause his anger to rise, and to create sensitiveness and surliness on the part of his men, but it was only one factor of his discontent busy all day at driving the scattered cattle away from the backbone and closer to the ranch proper where they would be less likely to fall prey to Apache raiders, working all day from the first sign of dawn to the prohibitive blackness of the night, they could have stood up under the strain, for these were men of iron, inured to hardships and constant riding. But hardy as they were, there was one thing which they must have, and that was sleep. If they could have only four hours of unbroken sleep when they threw themselves, fully dressed with the exception of their boots in their bunks, they could have endured the labor for weeks. But this was denied them, and constantly on their minds were thoughts of fire, slaughtered cattle, and death. For a week night had been a terror on the crossbar eight. No sooner had the exhausted outfit fallen asleep than bits of window-glass would fly about them, cutting and stinging. There was not a whole window-pane in the house, and the door was so full of lead that it sagged on its half-shattered hinges. Cooking utensils were fast-deserving premiums, for hardly an unperforated tin could be found on the premises. And their cook, a Mexican, who most devoutly believed in a personal devil and a brimstone hell, and who feared that he was living in uncomfortable proximity to both, stood the strain for just two nights. And then, panic-stricken, had fled from the accursed place and left them to get their own meals as best they could. The protection of the saints was all very well and good under ordinary circumstances, but when they failed to stop bullets which passed through his cook-shack and which more than once had grazed him, it was time for him to find some place far removed from the crossbar eight, and where the devil was less strong. When the saints allowed a devil-sped bullet to completely shatter a crucifix, it was time to migrate, which he did, but in broad daylight when the outfit had departed, and when the devil was not in evidence. 
the interiors of both the ranch house and the bunkhouse were wrecked. The clock, the pride of the foreman, stood with half its wheels buried in the wall behind it by a fifty-caliber slug, its hands pointing to half-past one. Lead filled the interior walls, where opposite windows and the holes and splinters were a disgrace. Sombreros, equipment, and the few pictures the walls boasted were like tops of pepper-shakers. No sooner was a light shown than it became the target for a shot, and more than one wound gave proof as to the accuracy of the perpetrator. So tired that they fell asleep at supper, the men were constantly awakened by the noise of devastation and the whining hum of the bullets. Pursuit was a failure, and was also hazardous, as proven by Bert Hodge's arm, broken by a fifty-caliber slug from somewhere. The two houses, wrecked as they were, were fortunate when compared to the condition of the other appurtenances of the ranch. Horses were found dead at all points, and always with a bullet-hole in the center of the forehead. The carcasses of cows dotted the plain, and fire had half destroyed the three corrals. The three cook-wagons, unsheltered, were denuded of bolts and nuts, and their tarpaulins were hopelessly ruined. A wheel was missing from each of them, and their poles had been cut through in the middle, the severed ends being found on the roof of the ranch-house three minutes after their crashing descent had awakened the foreman, who heard the hum and thud of a bullet as he opened the door. The best grass had been burned off, and the outfit had fought fire on several nights when it should have slept. And the small water-hole near the cook-shack, which furnished water for the bunkhouse, had been cleared of a dead calf on two mornings. Scouting was of no avail, for the few remaining horses, which now spent the night in the bunkhouse, were as exhausted as their riders. Keeping guard was a farce, for it had been tried twice, and the guards had fallen asleep, and, awakened by their foremen at dawn, found that their rifles, sombreros, and even their spurs were missing. With all this hatred for the orphan, Sneed was fair-minded enough to give his enemy credit for being the better man. When the harassing outrages had first begun and the foreman and his men were comparatively fresh, he had given the matter his whole attention, and he was no fool. But he had gained nothing but a sense of defeat, which fact did not improve his peace of mind or cause him to lose a whit of his anger. Do what he could, plan as he might, he was beaten and beaten at every turn. He had to deal with a man whose cunning and ingenuity were far above the average, a man who, combining a rare courage and a wonderful accuracy in shooting with devilish strategy, towered far above the ordinary rustler and outlaw. Sneed knew that he was absolutely at the mercy of his persistent enemy, and wondered why it was that he did not steal up in the night and kill the outfit as it slept, which was entirely feasible. Finally, when the strain had grown too much for even his iron nerves, the nerve was implored to take command on the ranch and give it his personal protection. The relations between the sheriff and the ranch were not as cordial as they might have been, and the asking of this favor was gall and wormwood to the foreman and his outfit. When Shields arrived to take charge of the trouble, accompanied by Charlie and two others, he sought the foreman, for Charlie had news of a grave nature for the crossbar eight. The foreman ran out of the bunkhouse and met them near the corral, where the disagreement had taken place. "'By the living God, Sheriff!' he cried, white with anger. "'This thing has got to stop if we have to call out the cavalry. We can't get a decent breakfast, not a whole plate or pan in the house. 
our cayuses and cows are being slaughtered by the score. And as for the rest of our possessions, they are so full of holes that they whistle when the wind blows." "'So I heard,' replied the sheriff. "'I'll do my best.' "'We've been doing our best, but what good is it?' cried the foreman. "'We are so plumb sleepy we go to sleep moving about. We dasn't show our faces after dark without being made a target of. Our new wagons are wrecks, the corrals destroyed, and the best grass made us fight for our lives while it burned. That cursed outlaw has got to be killed, to blank him." "'We'll do our best, Sneed,' responded Shields. "'I reckon we can stop it. At least we can give you a good night's rest.' "'Where are my five punchers?' Sneed asked, his words bellowed until his voice broke. "'And Bucknell, the blank near dead before you found him above the canyon, tied up like a package of flour.' "'Well, Charlie, can tell you about your men,' Shields responded, viewing the devastation on all sides of him. "'Well, what about them?' cried the foreman, turning to the sheriff's deputy, anger flashing anew in his eyes. "'Well,' Charlie slowly began, "'I was taking a shortcut this morning, and when I got to a place about a dozen miles southeast of the month of Bill's Canyon, I saw five bodies on the desert. They were your cowpunchers and they were so full of arrows that they looked like big brooms. Apaches, I reckon," he added sententiously. Sneed tore his hair and swore when he was not choking. "'And after I told him to let up on that blasted outlaw's trail,' he yelled, "'where will it end, between war-whoops and murders? What sort of a godforsaken layout is this, anyhow? A man can't stick his nose out of his own house after dark without having it skinned by a slug. He's a h-blank l of a hefty orphan, he is. Poor thing, ain't got no pa or ma to look after his dear little hide. He needs a regiment of cavalry for a papa, that's what he needs, and a good strong lariat for a mama. Orphant! He's a h-blank l of a sumptuous orphan. Have you trailed him? asked the sheriff having to smile in spite of himself at the execution on all sides of him and at the foreman's words. "'Trailed him!' yelled Sneed, raising on his toes in his vehemence. "'Trailed him! Good God, yes! What good is it? What can we do when our cayuses are so dod-gasted tired that they can't catch a tumble-bug? Trailed him! Yes, we trailed him, all right. We trailed him until we fell asleep in the saddles on our sleeping cayuses. And while we were gone, to blank if he didn't blow in and smash up our furniture. We trailed him all right, just like a lot of cross-eyed, loco-drunken ants. We had to wake each other up, and he could have killed the whole crowd of us with a club. And my punchers were so cocksure they'd get him. How in H-blank L did they go and mess up with Apaches? They wasn't no fool kids. The last time we saw them they were leaving the stage to go south after him, Charlie said. They hadn't got more than ten miles south when they must have met the Apaches. I have a suspicion that the orphan had a hand in that meeting, but how he did it I don't know. But I know that the spot was lovely for a head-on collision. Punchers riding south would turn the corner of the chaparral and run into the war-party before they knowed it. And I didn't see the orphan's body laying around all full of arrows, neither." Sneed's rage was pathetic. He almost frothed, and tears stood in his bloodshot eyes. 
His neck and his face were red as fire, and the veins of his neck and forehead stood out like whipcords, while his face worked convulsively. He was incapable of coherent speech, his words being unintelligible growls, a series of snarls, and he could only pace back and forth, waving his arms and cursing wildly. Shields glanced about the ranch and gave a few orders, his men executing them without delay. One man was to keep guard in the bunkhouse, while Sneed and his woebegone men slept. The sheriff and Charlie rode away toward the north to begin the search for the outlaw. And there was to be no quarter asked or given if his deputies had anything to do with it. The remaining deputy busied himself about the ranch in executing a plan the sheriff had thought out, and his actions were peculiar. First selecting a position from which a man could command an extensive view of the premises, he began to pace off distances in all directions. The place was about eight hundred yards west of the ranch-house and bunk-house, and formed one angle of a triangle with them, and from it it was possible to look in through the windows of both of them. Anyone passing within good rifle-range of either house would show up against the lights in the windows, and if a man had been covered over with sand on that particular outlying angle, he could pick off the intruder without being seen. The orphan was due to meet with a surprise if he paid his regular visit the coming night. The deputy, after completing his work to his satisfaction, found three more positions where they respectively commanded the corrals, the wagons, and the rear of the bunkhouse. Then he paced more distances, and was careful that bulky objects interposed in the direct lines between the positions, this latter precaution being to make it impossible for the deputies to shoot each other. This done, he went into the house and consulted with his companion-in-arms, laughing immoderately about the joke they would play on the marauder. While Shields and Charlie vainly searched the plain, and while the deputy paced and thought and paced, and while Sneed and his exhausted cowpunchers slept as if in death, safely under guard, two men were riding along the Ford Station Sagetown Trail well to the east of the backbone chatting amicably and smoking the same brand of tobacco. One of them sat high up in the air on the seat of a stagecoach, from where he overlooked his six-horse team. His face was wreathed in grins, and his expression was one of beatific contentment. The other cantered alongside on a dirty brown horse, which had a white stocking on the near front foot, keeping close watch of the surrounding plain, his mind active and alert. Bill Howland laughed suddenly and slapped his thigh with enthusiasm. "'Say, orphant,' he cried, "'you are sure raising H. Black L. with that crossbar eight, gang. You has got them so tangled up and miserable that they don't know where they are. If their brains was money, they'd have to chalk up their drinks. They're about as dangerous as ossified prairie dogs. They remind me of the feller who kicked a rattlesnake to see if it was alive, and found out that it was.' No, sir, they sure won't die of brain fever. Why, they ain't had any sleep for a week, have to work double hard, eat what they can cook in sieve tins, and can't say their soul's their own after dark. They could get rest if they quit working one day, and all but one get plenty of sleep. Then the other feller could get his at night. But they don't know enough. Oh, it's rich. The whole blame town is laughing at em fit to bust. It's the funniest thing ever happened in these parts since I've been out here." Then he suddenly paused. "'Say, 
Sneed sent a puncher to town this morning. It was that brass-headed, flat-faced Bucknell, what you tied up by the canyon. He begged the sheriff to swear in a dozen bad men and come out and protect his foreman and the rest of the outfit, and the pin-headed wart went and babbled the whole thing right in front of the Taggart saloon crowd, and he sure had to blow, all right. He sure did, and that gang's always thirsty." The horseman flecked the ashes from his cigarette and smiled. "'Well?' he asked, looking up. So Shields took Charlie Winter and the two Larkin boys and went out to the ranch right after the puncher went back. So you want to go easy tonight, or you'll touch off some unexpected fireworks and such. Shields and his men will stay out there for several days and nights. That'll give the crazy hens a chance to rest up a bit nights. But you be blame careful about them pinwheels and skyrockets, or you'll get burned some. Now don't you even remember that I told you about it. I wouldn't have said nothing at all, seeing as it ain't none of my business. Only you went and got me out of a tight place, and Bill Howland don't forget a favor, no siree. You gave me a square deal and an ace full on kings with them animated paint shops, and I'll give you a lift every time I can. It wouldn't be a bad scheme to watch for me once in a while. I might have some news for you." Bill's offer, plain as it was that he wished to help, not only because he was in debt to the outlaw, but also because he wished to have safe trips, touched the horseman deeply. Never in his life had the orphan been offered a helping hand from a stranger. All he could hope for was to get the drop first. He rode on silently, buried in thought, and then, suddenly flipping his cigarette at a cactus, raised his head and looked full at the man above him. "'You play square with me, Bill, and I'll take care of you,' he replied. "'The less you say, the less apt you are to put your foot in it. I'll hold my mouth about your information, for if Shields knew what you've just said, he'd play a tune for you to dance to. The crossbar eight would shoot you before a day passed. Any time you have news for me, tie your kerchief to that cactus," pointing to an exceptionally tall plant close at hand. Do it on your outward trip. If I see it in time, I'll meet you somewhere on the Sagetown end of the trail on your return. I'm going back now, so bye-bye." "'So long, and good luck,' replied Bill heartily. "'I'll do the handkerchief game all right. Be some cautious about the way you buzz around that stacked deck of a crossbar eight for the next few days." The orphan wheeled and cantered back, making a detour to the south, for he had a plan to develop and did not wish to be interrupted by meeting any more hunting parties. Bill lashed his team and rolled on his way to Sagetown, a happy smile illuminating his countenance. "'They can't beat us, Bronx,' he cried to his team. Me and the orphan can lick the whole blasted territory. You bet we can. End of chapter 9